0: There's no point in just knowing if you are a scientist. Surely the communication to, I don't know if you even call it an audience, but to your fellow human beings is very important. And I think Humboldt was excellent at that. So the Naturgemälde, which is essentially a drawing of a cross-section of Chimborazo, which has all the plant names of the plants he found at the exact altitude where he had found them, And then to the left and to the right, you have 20 columns filled with scientific data of all the stuff he measured, basically, as he was going up from humidity, temperature, the blueness of the sky, the chemical components of the air. So what you can do is you can trace a line across the Naturgemilde, say at 10,000 feet, and you get all the information there is. Now, the extraordinary thing about this is that it's basically a poster. It's packed with complex scientific data but it's super easy to understand. Everybody can understand it. You don't need to be a scientist. That's why his books are huge international bestsellers.
1: When you hear the word nature, what comes to mind? Chances are, if you are listening to this in the 21st century, the image is one of a vast interconnected living network, one in which you and your fellow human beings play a complicated part. And yet this is a relatively recent way of thinking for the modern West. It takes a special kind of thinker and a special kind of life to find and recognize the patterns that connect different environments around the world. Until the pioneering research of 19th century explorer Alexander von Humboldt, no one had ever noticed global similarities between the climates and creatures at a given altitude on different continents. His legendary work popularized not only a new portrait of the world and its complex interrelatedness, but innovated vastly influential ways of doing and communicating science, including novel data visualization and international interdisciplinary collaboration methods. Von Humboldt, though, would bristle at the notion that he stands alone as some great man in history, preferring to acknowledge not just the inspiration that he drew from poets and philosophers, but also the indigenous peoples he met and worked with in his travels. His theories begged to be examined in light of the aesthetic sensibilities with which they were communicated, as well as their socio-political and philosophical impact, including how they fertilized the transcendentalist romantics, founded what we now call ecology, and exemplified a synthesis of art and science at which our age of fragmented knowledge can only marvel. Welcome to Complexity, the official podcast of the Santa Fe Institute. I'm your host, Michael Garfield, and every other week we'll bring you with us for far-ranging conversations with our worldwide network of rigorous researchers developing new frameworks to explain the deepest mysteries of the universe. This week and next, we have a special two-part conversation for you with SFI Miller scholar Andrea Wolfe, author of six books, including the New York Times bestseller, The Invention of Nature, winner of the Royal Society Science Book Prize, and too many others to name in this introduction. In Wolf's words... This is not a biography about this great man. This is the biography of an idea. In part one, we begin our journey in Prussia at the turn of the 19th century in a rich milieu of daring minds and how their philosophies formed the basis for a profound new vision of the natural world. Subscribe to Complexity Podcast wherever you prefer to listen for part two next week. If you value our research and communication efforts, please rate and review us at Apple Podcasts and or consider making a donation at santafe.edu slash give. You can find numerous other ways to engage with us at santafe.edu slash engage. Thank you for listening. This last year of working remote has taken a toll, I think, on a lot of people. And I'm, it's hard to maintain the rapport with everybody yeah. when you never see each other.
0: Yeah, no, I I totally agree. I I mean, as a writer, I'm obviously kind of used to having these long periods of being, you know, a hermit. So I think it's a good profession um, in a pandemic, but it's also, I'm totally missing all the kind of serendipity of, being in a bar and talking to someone about something completely unrelated, which then suddenly inspires you to think about something, which then somehow kind of makes it into your book and all this right. And I'm a kisser and a hugger, so I'm finding this, oh,
1: God, yeah. I find this
0: very, very difficult
1: not to touch people and Oh yeah. I have a two year old now and it's like what is happening to her young brain through all of this? I but know. She's just used to seeing people in masks.
0: My daughter had a baby while I got stuck in Germany with hand luggage in mid-May <laughs> and then was stuck here for several months and missed my the birth of my grandchild. Oof. That's the bit I struggled the most about. And then, uh, but I, you know, he's now nine months and just, in you know, he's not really played with any kids. He's not like licked other babies and, you know, all that stuff you do crawl over each other. It's, it's very strange. Yeah. And I, I totally agree. I'd not even thought about the face mask.
1: Like smiling is really hard just with your eyes, isn't it? At least then you still have your eyes. Text only communication is a disaster. All of the other problems that people are claiming about social media, I think, pale in comparison to the idea that we can scale human communication. You know, no matter how brilliantly we design the newsfeed algorithms, trying to understand each other yeah. when you have nothing else to go on is yeah. just a nightmare.
0: Yeah.
1: All of these large companies that are going fully remote, like it seems all progressive.
0: No. I mean, I, I, I get it. It's like, it's probably really nice if you work like a couple of days at home or this, but I missed my fellowship in Santa Fe because of this stupid pandemic. I was meant to arrive on the 2nd of April. I was really looking forward to it because it is, it's just such a, I mean, excuse my language, right. but it's such a bonkers place, <laughs> for, you know, for someone who does something what I do, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, it's terrifying also because they're like, well, you know, I can remember sitting there and um, I think it was Chris Moore and... He had this German guy, Stefan, over and they were like scribbling on the board, you know, doing this mathematical proof. And for me, it was like the first time actually seeing what I write about historically happening in real life, but also being absolutely terrified because I have, you know, I'm not a scientist, but I just loved it. I just so enjoyed it. And I was meant to come for three months and I was so looking forward to it. I have a Zoom meeting scheduled with Tim and David next week. I'm going to beg them
1: to, um,
0: to because I can't, you know, I can't come now because I have to finish the book now. And I I think it's not the right time anyway. So I want to beg them to kind of, if I am be able to push it to 23 for my next book.
1: You have to wish me luck. What is this next book on?
0: Well, it's almost finished because I have not, have not been distracted for you know, more than a year now. I'm working like day and night on this because it's so boring in the middle of nowhere in Germany. <laughs> it's so cold still. It's like mid-May. I'm still in my winter clothes. Mm-hmm. I haven't worked out my elevator pitch yet. So I can't really summarize it briefly. But it's basically, it's about a bunch of philosophers and poets and writers who came together for a decade in this small town in Germany, Jena, which is where Humboldt also went in 1794. And for like a blink of a moment in Western philosophy, they changed everything. So you have every single important German philosopher and poet live in this tiny 4,000 people town, coming up with a new philosophy, that's what I'm arguing, that makes us a selfish species, which ultimately will destroy the, the planet. But also it's basically the moment where we began to use ourselves as the lens through which to understand the world, which was exhilarating then because it gave us free will and power, self-determination, all these exciting things. But it made us also, we became these people who think it's our right to take ourselves as the very first lens through which to understand the world. And, And it's this balancing act between who am I as an individual, who am I as a member of A community which, of course, through the pandemic became something really important again. So Humboldt is a side figure in there because he comes in for a brief moment. But Goethe is, for example, very important. But there's a bunch of philosophers which no one has heard of in the English-speaking world, but which are super famous people in Germany. I think I'm trying to bring them a bit down from their pedestal as the kind of great (laughs) writers and thinkers. The fun thing is, they all have affairs with each other, so it's, there's a lot of sex and rock and roll, basically. So you know, I have to, the philosophy, which is really, really hard to get through, and then I just have to get my reader back to like, oh, now they're all having sex with each other. And, you know, all the women are getting divorced three times, and so it's been a fun book to write.
1: It's funny that you bring this particular thing up. It's obvious. It's such an obvious natural extension from the Humboldt work. It's just worth noting as a like a segue into an actual podcast. It's funny how these things happen, where you have this nucleus of innovation somewhere that out of that kind of collaborative intermingling could emerge an idea about a liberal modern self. That's like a viral meme that, like you just said, spun completely out of control and has taken over the world and is undermining its own ecological supports.
0: Yeah yeah, that's
1: true. To fold it into Humboldt's vision of the world and like to give us a place to start here, that reminds me of the way that all of the complex neural motifs in the brain come together to form the appearance of an individual. There's something in the zeitgeist or in you know, the philosophical development that resembles this tension that we see between understanding the underlying reality, understanding the nature of humans and the rest of the living world in terms of individuals or in terms of networks?
0: I don't know if you've read Merlin Sheldrick's book, The Entangled Life, about fungies. I mean, he poses these fascinating questions about like, what is actually an organism? We've kind of for so long have assumed it's something where, you know, we end, basically. That's, our, that's the organism. But no, not really. You know, there are all these things in us. What I find interesting about this is actually, because I'm a historian, I always like to understand where something is coming from. It's almost kind of saddling the horse backwards, if you know what I mean. So basically, I became interested in this by looking at why are we so selfish? There was a moment, completely Bernard, I was on one of my Humboldt trips and I was in Peru and I went to Machu Picchu and it was like a long schlep up there the first thing that people do, that tourists do, is like take a selfie of themselves in front of it. And just think that, well, it's really beautiful. Why would you put yourself in there? And it's that sense of why do we always have to see everything through the lens of our individual life in a way? And you said this seems like a natural extension to the Humboldt book. And weirdly, for a long time, I didn't think so. I thought like, how am I ever going to explain to my readers how I came from this explorer? who is the forgotten father of environmentalism to this kind of bunch of German philosophers other than that he knew them and that I knew about this scenery really by him being there for a moment. It didn't feel a natural topic first for me because I always write about the relationship between humankind and nature. And then I realized, no, it's actually not. It's like if I want to truly understand the relationship between humankind and nature, I actually have to understand us as an individual first. That's actually the book which should have been written before the Humboldt book in a funny sort of way, but I seem to do books backwards. Because, you know, one of the philosophers there, he basically really came up with this idea that we live in this unity, like mind and matter, which had always been before separated became one in his philosophy and it's called the nature philosophy, which then becomes incredibly important for Humboldt who takes this and applies this to science and says like, well, this is all a living organism. It's funny how these things somehow always come together in the end. So I don't know what has to come after that book then because I think now I've arrived, I've arrived <laughs> where is the individual coming from? Like, I have no idea what, it has to be about God then or something like that.
1: Well, I would say probably, yeah, I was going to say medieval cosmology is next. (laughs) The gritty prequel to the gritty prequel, right?
0: Maybe, yeah.
1: You actually jumped right into where I wanted to start this with you, which was with Schelling and with Goethe, with these relationships that this guy, who we should actually introduce (laughs) for the sake of this audience, Alexander von Humboldt, has these relationships with these brilliant poetic thinkers that shape the way that he ultimately... Decides to explore the world and the way that he decides to communicate it. And to me, this was the piece that, you know, just to like run a thread through this whole conversation about the relationship between science and art and poetry and philosophy and the imagination, how we really ought to perhaps, you know, I I have to be careful about shoulds in these conversations, but like given the remarkable track record of. This guy's visionary accomplishments, all the things we're going to talk about today, like basically invented big science, basically invented data visualization, basically invented international interdisciplinary collaborations, invented the way that we think about nature today, essentially. And he had all sorts of really, really prescient political observations as well. Maybe we should be heeding his words about the relationship between these other disciplines that so often don't seem to figure into what we think of as the process of discovery these days. That's all just to say, where do you start us in the development of this guy's mind and this guy's approach to the world and his story?
0: So this is really unfair because you just basically started on my favorite subject and I have to now paddle back and introduce him. So you'll have to remind me that we go back to that because I actually think that Humboldt's insight about this very tight bond between the arts and the sciences is, I think, at the moment, for me, the most important aspect of his very broad life. So, let's paddle back a little bit and start actually who he was. So, some basic facts. He was born in 1769, which is the same year as Napoleon. He was the son of a wealthy Prussian aristocratic family in Berlin where he was brought up. He had a quite unhappy childhood, a very kind of emotionally cold mother. He was educated to the kind of highest standards at that time. So, very much within the kind of enlightenment thinking. The mother dies when he's quite young. Instead of going to the funeral and being really sad, he was uh, he was rather pleased about the whole thing and said, "Oh, I finally I can go on this great big voyage which I'm planning to do." So he left his life of privilege. He went on a exploration of South America and he left Europe in 1799 just before his 30th birthday and he spent 5 years in South America. And I think that's really important as a private person. He was very wealthy, so he paid for everything himself, but all other explorations before were really done and organized by governments and monarchs. So you had a particular remit, you know, there was something you had to find out that would be good for your government or your country or your monarch. Now, Homeboy didn't have any of those restraints. He traveled with a very small team, so he was very nimble. When he heard something on the ground, you know, someone local told him, You should go over there. He could just change his itinerary. So he's very flexible. And I think that's something we have to kind of bear in mind. He travels through South America. And during this exploration, he realizes and begins to really truly understand nature as a global force. And that's something we can talk about later. So he becomes, I think, he's really the first who looks at nature on a global scale, on a very interdisciplinary scale. At a time when other scientists are very much obsessed with taxonomy, you know, that's also something we should not forget, because for us, this seems like a really normal thing to do now. But then it was not at all. So he goes on this big exploration, which I you know, would always argue really shaped his life and his thinking and makes him kind of famous across the world. He quickly stops by in D.C. to meet the president of the United States, as you do, then goes back to Europe lives for about 20 years in Paris because this is really the center of scientific inquiry at that time. Then is broke because he spent all his money on his exploration and really has to go back to Berlin to work for the king there and then stays there until he dies. So he dies in 1859, just a few months short before his 90s birthday, the same year when Darwin publishes The Origin of Species, so just to cap his life. When he dies, he is the most famous scientist of his age. Ten years later, the centennial of his birth is celebrated across the world. And just to give you a sense of how famous this man is, who many people have never heard about today, when his centennial was celebrated in New York, there were 25,000 people marching through the streets of Manhattan to unveil a bust in Central Park, which is still there at the Explorer's Gate opposite the Natural History Museum. The entire front page of the New York Times was dedicated to Humboldt. So he was there, you know, he's an absolute superstar. Rightly so, I think. And now we can talk about why he was a superstar.
1: Yeah, yeah. Let's reel all that back to his relationship with Goethe. Mm -hmm. Goethe's another one of these people that had so many foundational and now seemingly very strange ideas about the practice of science. You know, at the time... We're not even talking about scientists proper, right? We're talking about natural philosophers. This is
0: really depends on your definition. Mm-hmm. I actually think more and more these days that science as they did then a science which also allowed your imagination to play an important role, and maybe even your emotional responses, which is obviously something that's not really accepted today. But I would argue that that was for their science quite important and for the revelations maybe they all also had. But Basically, Humboldt is very important for Goethe, but maybe Goethe is even more important for Humboldt. So they meet in 1794 when Humboldt is in his 20s and Goethe is in his 40s. Goethe is the most famous German poet. He is an international superstar he's really the god of German literature at that time. And he lives in this tiny little place in Germany, Weimar, and there's another city next to it, Jena, which is actually where my new book is set. So Jena is this tiny university town, 4,000 people, but it's a very strange place because it is through kind of inheritance laws. What was once a big thing, dukedom was split so small that there were effectively four rulers ruling this tiny little university with effectively no one in charge. So what happened, every professor who had problems somewhere in one of the German territories moved to Jena because you could basically do there whatever you wanted. So it becomes this Liberal, tiny little spot with these incredible visionary thinkers who are all together in this kind of tiny little town. So Goethe hangs out with them. Goethe loves these young people who come with these amazing ideas. He kind of feels quite old and uncreative. The war is raging through Europe, but he's also a scientist. He's obsessed with botany, for example. And he establishes a botanical garden there. He has a rock collection of eighteen thousand rocks. He's obsessed with color theory, optics. So he's really into science, and then but he feels a bit stale, let's say. And then Humboldt rocks up, who is in his mid-20s, who is a very restless, curious person. So Humboldt himself describes that he felt as if he was chased by 10,000 pigs. So there's this kind of drive in him. He never stops. He jumps so quickly from one subject to another that very few people can actually follow him. He's interested in everything. But he's still very much... A child of the Enlightenment who believes in empirical research you know it's all about data it's all about collecting data it's all about measuring that's really what his approach to science is and then he meets Goethe and these other young people who live there in uh, the young romantics really who live in Jena and he changes this time in Jena completely changes him because these are people who begin to see that subjectivity. Your senses, your mind, the categories that your mind imposes on the world, all of this is important in order to understand the world. So the question they're all asking themselves is like, how do we understand nature? How do we understand the natural world? Is this through rational knowledge that somehow in our brain when we are born, or is that something that comes through experience? So they all have kind of different opinions. And in the end, the philosophy that comes out of Jina is a philosophy that believes that the self basically creates at least what we know about the world. And they call it the self and the non-self. So the non-self is everything that's not the self. Now, if you accept that, suddenly your impressions also become important. It's not just what you measure with your scientific instruments. So Goethe is really the the person and and some of the philosophers there who push Humboldt in another direction. And then there's Schelling who Humboldt actually doesn't he doesn't meet him there and then but later, uh, who comes up with this nature philosophy, which is taking this philosophy of the self a step further, saying, well, yes, there's the self and the non-self, but that is actually one big unity. If this is one big unity, it also means that, and that is what becomes really important for the romantics, if we are the same as nature, then we can also discover ourselves in nature. So this is really the moment when they all start going out, climbing up mountains and finding themselves. So for Humboldt, this idea becomes the nucleus of his thinking that earth is one big living organism and we are just a tiny part in this which then becomes incredibly important for his environmental ideas and he himself says that in jena and goethe that goethe has given him new organs through which to understand the world and it's with these new organs that he travels through south america and these organs also include your feelings your emotions and your imagination. At the same time, he carries 42 scientific instruments through Latin America. So he's not (laughs) sitting there admiring the moon, going like, oh, this looks so beautiful to my soul and my heart. He measures. He's a proper, proper scientist. He's obsessed with heart data. But at the same time, he will say, my favorite quote is when he says, what escapes the measurements speaks to the soul. Mm. So both is important.
1: There's a line that you quote of Friedrich Schelling's I myself am identical with nature. It seems perhaps like a paradox, but I think it's worth exploring. You mentioned the mountain climbing. Everyone starts climbing mountains. And there is a particularly modern scientific iteration of a very classic human rite, which is the spiritual pilgrimage to the mountaintop. And the way that he weaves, like you said, kind of more spiritual or poetic concerns into his process brings us to the zenith both literally and narratively, of his life, which happens at the peak of Chimborazo. This is in Ecuador, right? This mountain, which, if I'm remembering this correctly, this was like the, the tallest summit
0: it was that, so it's almost 21,000 feet and it was then believed to be the highest mountain. And in a way it is because it sits almost on the equator. So its distance to the <laughs> core of our planet actually makes it the tallest.
1: Yeah. So, you know, your your book is full of these, these extraordinary accounts of Humboldt and his small team of friends and help climbing this peak against all odds, deprived of oxygen, frozen Getting their horses shocked by electric eels, <laughs> you know. Not, I mean, not like down there. I was like in the Orinoco, right? His trip is just is just extraordinary, and he gets to the top, sees something that we, we take for granted now is something. You know, when people talk about getting out into space, we talk about the overview effect that astronauts have. There's only one. I forget who it was. There's like one astronaut that's on public record as saying, you know, I was kind of underwhelmed. Like everybody was talking it up. (laughs) I was just like, Oh yeah, it's the planet. Okay, whatever. But everyone else has this literal and metaphorical peak experience. And there's something about what you said about the Yena group and their differentiation between self and non-self that seems to prepare the flow of philosophical thinking into I don't know. I guess it's like, like a dialectic. It seems like it's first it's like a thesis antithesis, and then you bring them together and you say, I myself am identical with nature. That's the synthesis. And that, that's the move that we see Humboldt take with his essay on the geography of plants and his articulation that all of these, to stand on top of what you believe to be the world's tallest mountain, to look down at the way that the plant ecosystems change as you move up in altitude and to recognize that it's something's extremely similar and that there's this unity and this convergence going on. You have to get out far enough to see in from a fresh perspective and realize he is presaging somebody like Ed Mitchell or Rusty Schweikart saying, look at this planet.
0: It's interesting that you actually use the astronauts because very often I show the Earthrise photo in my lectures because i think it's exactly the same feeling that so no one had ever been so high up as he had so he yes he has this ability to zoom into the microscopic but also to kind of zoom out and i think there're not a lot of people who can actually do that who have the mind the very particular mind to go into the tiniest tiniest detail but then also have that sense of broad understanding when they zoom out for kind of broad, big ideas and concepts. And he was definitely someone who could do that. And maybe also very luckily for him, he chose Chimborazo at that particular moment because it is a mountain that stands on the equator. You have this very extraordinary thing happening that you start off in the valley and it's tropical. You know, you have Jaturas and Fuchsias and you have all these tropic bananas palm trees, all these tropical plants. And as you move up, and that's what he describes, it is like a botanical journey from the equator to the poles. So you do, you have a geographical journey. And he literally has an epiphany on the top of Chimborazo. maybe slightly induced by um, altitude sickness, I don't know. But it is a moment when he realizes that Everything hangs together because as he goes up up, so he sees because he has this extraordinary mind and memory. He sees these plants he had seen elsewhere in the Alps, in Switzerland, in the Pyrenees, on Tenerife, and he makes that connection. So, like, hold on a second, I've seen a plant like this somewhere else. He then spends many, many, many years trying to kind of bring all these different plants together and comparing them and understanding that we actually have also global vegetation zones so again it's the he uses taxonomy in part because that's how you classify plants but that's not what he's interested in at all he needs it as his data but he's interested in putting these things together and for me one of the great examples is when he looks at climate scientists really until then were just taking the temperature so thomas jefferson for example is utterly obsessed with meteorology, so he takes every single day he takes the temperature when you know wherever he is and when he's not in Monticello he asks someone else to do it so you end up with these notebooks with long 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 lists of temperature and Humboldt does something very very different Humboldt visualizes this so he compares temperatures at different places in this world but instead of having a column for Stockholm a column for Paris a column for London and for Mexico, he puts this on a map. And what he sees is he invents isoterms, these kind of wavy lines of temperature and humidity and stuff like that. So he, he understands they are global climate zones, which you can only do because you visualize something. And I think, in a way, the Jena time, the time in Jena has prepared him for that because all of them there. Talked about imagination as the most important thing. And, the, and they also talked, which I think is really important, which is something you touched on earlier. They talked about we have to poeticize the sciences. And that I think is something really important. And it works on many levels. So one is the, the level of Humboldt comes back and describes his journeys like a poet, really. But at the same time, he uses also his scientific data. So he and you end up with these books that are really for the general audience. But which combine scientific observation with very evocative poetic landscape descriptions. But I think poeticizing the sciences means also something different. It's not just to write poetically about the sciences, it also means that you allow imagination and genius, artistic genius, into the sciences. That you, you know, you you roll with it a little bit. You don't just you don't divide it. you have someone like Humphrey Davy, the chemist when you look at his actual manuscripts in his notebooks, you'll see on one side of the notebook, he'll write down the scientific results of his experiments. And on the other side, he writes his emotional responses to what he's seen. And I think that it's quite important. And Humboldt is really very much ahead of his time there, I think.
1: There's another way in which belief in a union or a relationship depending on, you know, kind of how you cook it, between the science and poetry shows up. I'm really interested in this, like you said, the, the isotherms and the data visualization piece of this and the role of the image and translating an image, you know, because I had a, a conversation about a scientific illustration in college, trying to understand why it is that people still do this rather than just taking photographs. You know, we have these incredibly sophisticated cameras, why do you still hire an illustrator? And it was, you need someone to cut out all of the unnecessary detail. You need somebody who knows what's relevant and what's irrelevant. And that requires understanding the audience and the non-linear path that a fact must take in order to be received, taken up into the network of someone else's brain. Mm -hmm. Danielle Bassett, Gave an excellent SFI community lecture about this networks thinking themselves, which we'll link in the show notes, about the structure of narrative and how narrative is such a persistent, strongly convergent form in human communication because of the way that we process and take up information. And you know, we had Corel Benzi on the show, Swiss data artist. The talk that he gave at SFI, which we'll link also, was. All about this question of how do you get a signal through to someone. It's not just you know how do I display this for my own understanding. It's how do I display it for others. I think we got a little bit ahead because the the isotherms actually come much after the natura gemilda that profile that you you have on the spine of the book of Chimborazo and its various climates.
0: There are several things. So, so one thing is, I mean, as a writer, of course, my task is to tell a story. I mean, the word history has the st- word story in it. So, you know, it's, and storytelling, you know, there's no point in just me telling the story to myself. So, I, you know, I obviously need my readers, my audience. I want to take them with me. For me, that's the fun bit, really. So I'm obsessed, for example, with structure. I restructure my books, like, I mean, I spent more time structuring than actually writing. It's ridiculous. I just pull everything. It's like a game of dominoes. It all falls apart. I've just taken three chapters apart. And it's like, oh God, what a mess. But I think it's incredibly important. And if the structure works well, you don't notice it at all because it just flows. And in a way, in science, I think it's even more important because science is difficult for non-scientific people like me. So science communication is so essential especially dare i say in a pandemic or even more when it comes to climate change because there's no point in doing all the science when you don't get everybody on this planet to go along with you and that only will work if you touch them somehow and and i would argue that it's not always the scary numbers sometimes it's about visualizing something so there's for example there's this amazing Belfast artist, he's called Robin Price. What he does is through experimental photography, he can visualize the fine particulate matter that's so harmful. And they look like little twinkly fairy lights. So he takes a photograph, say, for example, of the coast of Mexico, the coast of Wales, where there's hardly any air pollution. And you just see like a few little twinkles. And then Mexico City, and then like New Delhi. It's just a carpet or fairy lights. So for me, as a you know, non-number person, that was so much more a kind of brutal realization of air pollution than if you'd given me the equivalent numbers to those three places. And so I think we need poets, we need artists, we need musicians to all deal with this. So it is about visualization, it's about communicating. There's no point in just knowing what's happening if you're a scientist. Surely the communication to I don't know if you even call it an audience but to you know your fellow human beings is very important at least in certain fields. And I think Humboldt was excellent at that. So the Naturgemälde which is essentially a drawing of a cross section of Chimborazo which has drawn in all the plant names of the plants he found at the exact altitude where he had found them. And then to the left and to the right, you have 20 columns, which are filled with scientific data of all the stuff he measured basically as he was going up from humidity, temperature, the blueness of the sky, the chemical components of the air, all these kind of things, all drawn into the columns at the altitude where he had measured it. So what you can do is you can trace a line across the Naturgemilde, say at 10,000 feet, and you get all the information there is. Now, the extraordinary thing about this is that it's basically a poster. It's packed with complex scientific data, but it's super easy to understand. Everybody can understand it. You don't need to be a scientist. He is targeting very much, not the scientist in the ivory tower. He's targeting everybody. That's why his books are huge international bestsellers.
1: E.O. Wilson says, the ideal scientist thinks like a poet, works like a bookkeeper, and all too rarely writes like a journalist. I want to, at this point, draw a distinction between the way that he so effectively communicated in his writing and in his imagery and the way that he actually took notes and wrote. And <laughs> because you have this wonderful passage on page 230 of the paperback version where you show his lecture notes and how it's like pieces. He wrote the thing and then he scrawled in the margins and then he started putting notes on them and then he he stuck notes onto the notes. And it looks like when I had Mark Moffat on the show to talk about canopy biology and about like the way you go down to the Amazon and you see trees growing on trees, growing on trees. The soil on the branches is thicker than the soil on the ground. And that's what it looks like. That's what, in a Mm -hmm. way- Again, speaking back to this sort of proto-cybernetic understanding of sense impressions and the inner workings of the mind as related intimately to the outer world, it's like he actually explicated the tangled inner workings of the mind that are themselves an evolutionary hypothesis about our tangled environment, you know, what, what Charles Darwin called the tangled bank. Yeah. In order to communicate that, you do not, as I have on many mistaken occasions, done myself. You do not just throw that out in front of people and expect them to make sense of it. You map the twisting rivers and the the winding forests, and then you cut a trail through them. You're able to use that landscape in order to identify a path of lowest entropy or whatever through this wilderness of ideas. And it's just a really beautiful thing there.
0: I'm obsessed with manuscripts because I think we can learn so much by it. so I you know I don't understand historians who don't go an ar- into an archive because I think it's it reveals so much that is otherwise hidden. If you think about how you write, for example, how you take notes, it shows something. You know, some people are really super tidy, and others you see their highlighters and order it, and others, you know, total mess. So Humboldt's multi-layered collages of thoughts is I think the only way I can describe it for me shows that his mind he doesn't think linear you know he thinks like he understands nature it's a web everything branches out everything is connected. And this is one of the reasons why I wanted to do or why I did the adventures of Alexander von Humboldt, the, the graphic novel, which is really not a graphic novel, but which is like some weird illustrated hybrid, which I'm kind of refusing to categorize in a way. You know, Humboldt came back with 4,000 pages from his diary and with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of drawings and sketches. So he was very much someone who understood nature by visualizing it, by drawing it. So you were talking about how why do we need scientific illustrator because they extract something also, which is important. And I think a lot of scientists also draw because that's a way for them to make sense of something that you sometimes can't make sense of with words, but you can do visually. And when you look at his papers, at his manuscripts, you realize just how important this all is for him. So I wanted to do a book that showed this, that showed all the stuff I couldn't show in The Invention of Nature, which is, you know, more a kind of traditional book. And you see how he digs deeper through drawing, but you also see how he writes. I mean, he has terrible handwriting, but how he writes something like in the corner and then in another corner, and then he sticks something on on top. And then you have this extraordinary system of filing, which, you know, might sound boring, but, you know, bear with me. So his filing system, I think, is basically a computer. It's so clever. So here he is. And they amazingly kept it like this. So in the archives in Berlin, you get out these boxes. He called them boxes, and they're still called boxes. So box eight, box whatever, box 9, box 9B. And in that box, you have open envelopes which have also titles. So say a box is called slavery. Then you have in that box an envelope that is called sugar because, of course, sugar has to do with slavery. Now, in that envelope about sugar, he will have something about the botany of the plants. He will have something about work conditions, all these kind of different things. So he would get a letter from someone who worked at a... Slave plantation in the West Indies with botanical information. So that goes into the envelope sugar, botany, or something like that. And then he would have someone write him something about the health effect it had on slaves or something like that. So, so he sorts it in these, in these and then he has this kind of box slavery. And then he starts writing his books. And so he can just take out this box and he can use it, but he can file in like a page from a book. He has never problems tearing out pages from books, put that in a newspaper article, a letter. But then he starts writing another pro- essay or another book. And suddenly it is about the botany of, I'm making this up now, the botany of the West Indies. So he can just take that envelope out of the slavery box, and he can put it into the box botany of the West Indies. So he has this vast archive of information, but he can resort it and refile it according to the project he's working on, which you know, is keywording, basically, in an analog way, uh, which I think is so clever, which allows him to make these connections, which I think other people can't do because they have a different filing system.
1: I wanted to get into some of the ways that he helped pioneer the practices of more, you know, what we think of as more contemporary, even like 21st century science. And one of them is this, the keyword operations, that notion that Humboldt unites a whole academy within him, that he couldn't pick a given discipline. Like you said, he's at home in powers of 10, like swinging through the the micro to the macro and, and back. And this is like, of course, back when computers were still people. That was a job description. So it's just it's interesting. There's like the two scales, right? That he's operating at a time when extraordinary individuals were capable of this quote-unquote renaissance kind of thinking. Yet it sounds reading your book like he knew he says, without a diversity of opinion, the discovery of truth is impossible. Even to be fully self-contained an academy within you, you still need to reach out and forge what sounded like kind of one of the first interdisciplinary working groups, which was the Magnetic Crusade. He was holding salons where he was bringing people together. And these kinds of pre-sentiments of large international collaborations and so on, it's interesting again, because yeah, it's this, it again echoes the, the organization that you're talking about here in terms of the way his own mind sort of echoes the structures of the environments that he was exploring and how that's, each of us contains multitudes, but also participates in society. And then that kind of thinking lends itself to some more like speculative stuff. I want to put a pin in for later, because I think it's, you know, when you get to the natural religion of Ernst Haeckel and questions about the sort of transcendent component here, I think it's really fascinating.
0: I think Humboldt is born at a very, or lives at a very particular moment and dies at a very particular moment. So he dies in 1859. So I think he's pretty much the last great polymath because after that, it's absolutely impossible for one person to hold all this knowledge in one head. And towards the end of his life, he's really, really struggling already to just keep it all together, even with his great filing system. There's a reason that Humboldt wrote 50,000 letters and he received 100,000 letters. So he truly believes in sharing knowledge. This is about finding out what's going on. This is not about I'm finding it out. This is about let's find it out, us together. I want to know. This is what drives him, this deep, deep curiosity. So he always... Opens up his notebook. So there are great moments when Charles Lyell, for example, comes in 1823 to Paris, you know, this kind of young geologist, not really not known at all. And Humboldt gives him all the information he has about volcanoes in South America, which is very important for Lyle later on. So he shares, but he's also expecting others to share with him. So he gets very, very excited when they're talking about telegrams and the kind of the telegraph, the cable, because He can just imagine, he can just call someone in America to find something out because obviously he has to write a letter and he has to find out. But he has this army of helpers, which are fellow scientists. So he's never allowed to travel to India. The British, they just basically don't want this Prussian troublemaker commenting on colonialism as he had done in South America. So he is not allowed to go to India, but he needs to compare the Himalaya with the Andes. He assists the British botanist Hooker to go to the Himalaya, and then the poor man is bombarded with letters by Humboldt, who who literally will write and say, "Would you mind going up this mountain slope on the southern side and you know tell me which plant is growing on which at which altitude because he needs that information," or he will do stuff where he because he can also be quite obnoxious. (laughs) He publishes his books so that later on when he publishes Cosmos, and there are huge sections of astronomical observations in there. And he will get a proof from his printer without the figures, and he will send that to an astronomer, and he'll say, like, can you just fill in the numbers? <laughs> it's really kind of everybody working together. It's an international collaboration, and he's always very open about this. And when he doesn't understand something, he has no – that's, I think, really important. He has no problem saying that. So – at some stage, he doesn't quite understand Michael Faraday's new theories. He doesn't quite get it. This is when he's quite old already. So he just gets someone else to explain it to him, which I think shows. And at like age 70, he goes back to university. Isn't that amazing? Because there are these young geologists and young chemists who have all this new stuff to talk about. And how am I going to find this out? Well, I'm just going to sit at the lecture hall and I'm going to listen to it. And it's just brilliant.
1: Yeah, I actually wanted to to raise that. It was Wilhelm, his brother, right, who founded the college that he then attended in his his old yes. age?
0: It's the first university in Berlin. Amazingly, the Prussian capital didn't have a university in eight, until 1810. Good
1: grief. You talk about the students who would joke that, oh, he's not in class today. He must be advising the king because that's <laughs> like what he was still on royal dispensation. That is a lifetime learning to which I think we might all wish to aspire. And it is the kind of thing, in an age of rapid change and explosive discovery, it does seem like that's what's demanded of us. He was right there at the threshold of being able to hold it all in himself. And at the end, the older he gets, the less he can rely on his own ability to traverse. It's not just political reasons, it's just he's in an aging body. And you start to see him almost become the organizing hub or the nucleus of this vast cybernetic research conglomerate.
0: If you think about like today, it's so difficult to be interdisciplinary, you know, as in one person, because everybody has to be so specialized. So instead of a Humboldt, we have to have groups of people, which I think this is the amazing thing about the Institute, you know, because you have these people together and then, you know, you get people they even invite people like me, historians. You're not scientists because there is some cross-fertilization going on between all of this. And you never, you just never know about the serendipity of sitting next to someone at, at lunch, talking about something. You have absolutely no idea. Sometimes you also don't understand a word, really. But, you know, then you kind of ask and you ask more and then someone will explain it to you. And then it's almost like these little tentacles which go into another discipline. And through that... It's like a little tube. You can like suck up a little bit of that knowledge. You just have to have lots, enough of those tentacles to hold it all together, I think. Someone will know something enough to feed the next person to get a little bit of that discipline.
1: Thank you for listening. Complexity is produced by the Santa Fe Institute, a nonprofit hub for complex systems science located in the high desert of New Mexico. For more information, including transcripts, research links, and educational resources, or to support our science and communication efforts, visit santafe.edu podcast.